0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal
1: if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour.
1: Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast, presented by STP i'm your host nate ryan today we are at the toyota racing development motor coach in the dover international speedway infield where i am joined by andy graves who i've been trying to have on here for quite a while i'm glad that our schedules finally we're able to align. Thanks for being here, Andy. I know you're a busy man. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. Your title? I'm a group vice president, a technical director of TRD. So essentially, you are at the races most of the time, 80% of the time?
0: I'd say it's probably 80% now, Nate. Uh, it, it, it has been, I was going to all the races uh, for a long time. I, this is the 27th year that I've been in NASCAR, but my role at TRD was, um, I was going to almost all of them. But with my other duties and and having to go to California, having to uh, be responsible technically for all series that Toyota and uh, uh, Lexus are involved in in North America, I have to have to go to some other races as well.
1: So that's sports cars and racing
0: and Uh, IMSA and HRA. Uh, off-road with torque and, and also USAC.
1: Do you enjoy getting out to the other series, even though obviously this is where I'm sure the, most of the priorities and the resources are dedicated? Sure, yeah. I mean,
0: you know, we we always, in, in every series, uh, Toyota wants to uh, have success and do good and, and um, you know, be be part of the culture uh, for, for each one of the racing series. So I do like it. I like the diversity. Um, I enjoy it. You know, I, I grew up uh, racing, um, going to Oswego Speedway in upstate New York with super modifieds and then dirt racing in the Midwest. So, you know, the USAC routes are, are very dear to me and, and I always enjoy being able to go and to hang out with uh, Keith Koontz and Bob East and, and, and some of those guys.
1: Those are some famous sprint car owners, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's an they they're And right now they're currently in the Toyota family as well. So, um, you know, it, it really works out great. And, and I owe a lot to, to both of those guys amongst a handful of people.
1: And then when you're not on the road, Andy, most of your time is spent at Toyota's facility in Salisbury. That's where you have pretty much an engineering base and some equipment. Like, do you have like a seven post or like a pull down type thing for teams to use? Yeah,
0: we do. We have, we have a technical center in, in Salisbury. Uh, and, and that's where we have, uh, we have an eight post, which is it's basically the same thing. And they, uh, it's just one extra post for aero load, but uh we have that, we have a KNC rig, kinematics and compliance, and then, you know, we do have pull-down rigs, we have our simulator uh, on site there, so, and you know, we, we have approximately 50 engineers that are based uh, in Salisbury, so we have that facility, obviously, um, with our relationship with Joe Gibbs, I'll, I spend one day a week at uh, JGR, and, and then, um, you know, I've my responsibilities also include taking care of the engine build and engineering in Costa Mesa. So uh, I go out to California every other week, approximately. So to check on those It's a lot of places you got to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think last year I flew like uh, 220,000 miles, so it was, it was a little bit hectic.
1: We'll get to the, the Joe Gibbs virtual row part of it, too. But that's essentially, you're there on Tuesdays when they do their debriefs with the drivers and crew chiefs. Yeah, know.
0: that's correct. Yeah, when, when we do our competition meeting and then... Obviously, I have some other, uh, some meetings uh, with the technical department before the competition meeting. And, and a lot, then we just roll into the afternoon after lunch with anything else that needs to be caught up on and,
1: and tidied up. So that's what you're doing now, Andy. You mentioned that you grew up upstate New York. Oswego is uh, where you're from. And tell me about how you got started in racing. You, is that a dirt racing scene up there? Is it open wheel?
0: Yeah, it's open wheel, but it's asphalt. Okay, asphalt. Um, All right. So uh, actually, uh, I grew up in Mexico, New York, <laughs> which is very close to Oswego. But the track was in Oswego, New York, and, and both those towns are just north of Syracuse, uh, maybe 20, 25 minutes. So, uh, I you know, my father raced uh, Supers at Oswego before I was even born. So really the entire time that, uh, you know, in my childhood, I, w- I was around cars the entire time. And... My dad would always—he was an industrial battery salesman—and then when he came home at night, he, him, and a couple of his friends would would work on his race cars in the garage. So I'd always—that's—that was my time to hang out with my dad. Um, Started racing quarter midgets myself when I was nine, and did that for a couple years, and then by the time I was twelve, my father had bought a speed shop in Mexico, and uh, we built—he built cars for people, sold parts. And so I, I learned how to start uh, welding and uh, machining uh, parts on the mill and lathe and bending tubing and how to sell parts and, and take care of the whole speed shop uh, from the time I was 12. So um, I think when I was a junior in high school, my my dad decided he wanted to sell it, and I actually worked out a deal to buy it from him. So I, I owned the speed As shop. As a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, at, at that point, I was basically running the speed shop for him and um i i wanted to continue it so we worked out a payment plan and uh the end of my junior year and then my my entire senior year i owned this beach shop myself and um so we did that until uh i graduated high school and with our building our our family business of building cars, uh, super modifieds in the Northeast. They they mainly race at Oswego, Sandusky, Ohio, and uh, Star Speedway in New Hampshire. I got hooked up with uh, Hoosier Racing Tire, where basically whenever they wanted to do a tire test, uh, Hoosier would call me and ask me to pick one of my teams and uh, to go to to help them do tire testing. And uh, it was uh, 1989 and uh, it was my first year out of high school basically the the USAC sprint car scene was starting to take off and everyone was running asphalt that's when Thursday Night Thunder started Uh, Hoosier said hey you know the sprint cars uh, the all-star series is going to run Sandusky Ohio for the first time ever on asphalt and we'd like you to come be you know consult for us Uh, so I agreed and drove to Sandusky and when I got there uh, Irish Sanders from uh, Hoosier said, Well, I want to put you with our top driver, Jeff Gordon. So I was 19 and Jeff was 18, and, and uh, we just hit it off. And that night, I, I, we set fast time and uh, lapped the field in the feature. So uh, it was from there on, it was a really neat friendship. And Jeff's uh, stepfather, John Bickford, asked me to move to Indiana. And um, because the next year, they were playing in a full assault on the Thursday night. Thunder series um, with their their family-owned sprint car, and so I I moved to Pittsburgh um, at the end of 1989 um, during the winter, and then the full 1990 season, I worked for um, Jeff and John on their sprint car, and also uh, Bob East uh, needed some help, so I started working for Bob building midgets and and sprint cars for people bob was taking care of steve lewis's midget that stan fox drove so i also uh wrenched on that too so
1: it was a there's a, a lot year. of famous names that you came in touch with right away and when you moved to indiana yeah I mean, some of them obviously weren't famous yet in terms of jeff gordon but yeah right. a lot of those are, are big names I, i've been
0: super fortunate that really you know uh, all the steps along my way from you know the what my father has been able to do in the sport and then working with uh working for john and then working for Bob East and um, and working with drivers like Jeff and and Stan Fox has been uh, awesome. And you know I'm just very very fortunate to always have worked with great people.
1: That night at Sandusky, Ohio, with Jeff Gordon, who's your tire setup? You recently tweeted a photo. Was that the car that you tweeted? Or no? Or... No,
0: I, actually that one wasn't. That uh, the the tweet that I uh, had that was that was during the 1990 season. Ah, okay, yeah, okay, so, okay. And and that was actually the very last. Uh, race that we ran, which was like the first week in November of 1990, and it was at Winchester uh, Speedway, and uh, we we won that race, and uh, immediately after the race, I went back and uh, packed up uh, my apartment, and on Monday morning, got in the car and and drove to to Charlotte because I had gotten a job with Hendrick Motorsports, so uh, November, I think it was like November 18th of 1990, I started at Hendrick.
1: Was that Jeff Gordon's last time then competitively? Do you think an open wheel car before Winston? The the
0: next the next year, um, you know, I moved to Hendrick and Jeff started driving for Bill Davis yeah. um, in the Bush Series at that time. But he that next year, uh, his rookie year in Bush, he did run the Silver Crown car for uh, Fred Eed as well. So, uh, he, yeah, he he drove a, on a part time basis in open.
1: So it. you guys won your last race together at, at Winchester, though. I was hoping that would be like, yeah, you took Jeff Gordon out, man. <laughs> well, at, at Winchester, by the way, yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Let's, let's say that I think that was his last uh, sprint car race. Okay. So, could you tell Andy from that? So you didn't know anything about him. I mean, I'm sure you'd heard about him, but you didn't know him at all before you started working. With him that night in in Ohio, could you tell immediately this this guy has world class talent? Yeah, oh yeah, he he was so smooth. I mean, Jeff,
0: one of Jeff's he was a very smart driver. Um, kept his momentum up really good. I mean, that was one of Jeff's keys. I felt like always. Um, so but yeah, when when I got introduced to him that night in Sandusky, Ohio, I had known of Jeff. But it was primarily from reading Open Wheel Magazine and that he was the 14, 15-year-old kid from California that moved to the Midwest because they wouldn't let him race in California. And I would say Jeff Jeff had some success, but he really had not taken off until that 1989 season and it was starting to build. Um, you know, he had won some some really big races uh, the night before the 500 and Raleigh's midget and... He had done some things that year to, to really start opening up some people's eyes, and in that night in in Sandusky, it was it, it was just magic. You know, we just, we clicked really well.
1: And you didn't know when you went there that they were going to put you with him. That was a, just a decision. They you were working on tires mostly for for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was uh, on my on my drive to Sandusky. It was really you know just knowing that I was there to help. Hoosier Tire, and um, you know, just do whatever that they asked me to consult and work with the teams. And I didn't know if it was going to be one team or five teams. And when I got there, uh, Irish uh, decided he just wanted to put me with. With Jeff in the McBride and Schaff car, and like I said, it was uh, it worked out perfect. Yeah, uh, it was it was really good. So
1: you went to Hendrick, Andy, but and so Jeff Gordon went there eventually as well. But you were there before him. It wasn't as if he brought you there. You had met was it Ken Howes at Hendrick. So like I said, at the pretty early in 1990,
0: um, when I was working for for John Bickford and, and and Jeff Bob East needed some help, some extra help putting some cars together because he was getting so many orders. And so John agreed to loan me to Bob for two weeks. And the two weeks ended up being a full season. <laughs> Bob wouldn't give me back. so And John still uh, cracks jokes about that t- today. But, you know, where I would uh, during that season, I was living with Jeff and, and his parents in Pittsburgh. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd drive to uh, Gasoline Alley. It was where Bob had his shop. And, and I'd work all day there. And at five o'clock, I'd drive back to Pittsburgh. We'd eat dinner, and then I'd go out in the in the shop and work on the Sprint car, uh, you know, until about ten o'clock at night. And then I'd drive back to Gasoline Alley and work for a couple hours on Stan Fox's midgets that were at Bob's place. So it was they were full days. And Bob East uh, shop on Gasoline Alley was right next to Rick Hendrick's uh, Corvette shop, and Ken Howes was. Um, running the team they weren't racing in 1990 they were basically putting all the cars back together uh, for museums and and for Chevrolet and so I got to know Ken and and Ken was like one day he he would come talk to me every now and again and and one day he said you know we're we want to start a chassis building shop um, at Hendrick And I'm getting ready to move back there. And he goes, I see you work. He goes, you work like 20 hours a day. He (laughs) goes, we need people like you. And so he set up an interview for me with Gary Dehart. So in the fall of 1990, I I drove to Charlotte. Uh, That's the week that Jeff did his Buck Baker driving school. And Jeff and I drove there. He did that, and I had my interview with Hendrick, and I got the job right on the spot. So that was October, and I told him, I said, I have like three more races that I'm committed to and I'd like to do that before coming here, and and they agreed. So November of 1990, I drove and started at Hendrick um, and was primarily uh, to start the chassis building facility with Gary DeHart. And then uh, Jeff ended up moving. I think I got an apartment, and Jeff moved there in our apartment in a like February when he started the season with Bill Davis. Right. So, and then we lived together for 1991. And then w- Jeff and I, and another friend of mine, Bob Lutz, um, the, the three of us bought a house together. So it was probably between Indiana and our apartment, and our house, I, Jeff and I lived together for probably about six or seven
1: years. One of the reasons I had to do this podcast, Andy, was your relationship with Jeff Gordon, because you have this great story, which I'm hoping you will tell and share with everybody about Jeff Gordon, finding out that you were on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories of all time, so hope I'm not putting too much pressure on you to tell this. But as you said, you guys know each other really well and live together for a while, but you don't see each other as much after you leave Hendrick and then go to other teams and you're working at Toyota. And it was the Bristol Motor Speedway infield, the pedestrian tunnel. It was going through the tunnel. So this would have been eight or nine years ago or something like that?
0: Yeah, I (laughs) I can't remember how long, but um, it was kind of the the big boom of Twitter, right? Right. And there's so many professional athletes don't, weren't actually running their Twitter accounts, but I don't, I'm not sure anyone really understood the dynamic yet. And so, and I had started and I had one of our old photos together. I had posted it and tagged Jeff in it, not knowing if that, if he really even saw that he responded to it. We end up uh, crossing in the tunnel at Bristol like two weeks later. Jeff was walking with John um, Edwards, and I was coming from the other direction. And he goes, "Hey, Drew," which you know Jeff always—he's probably one of the only people that calls me Drew instead of Andrew uh, <laughs> or Andy. He's, "How you doing?" I said, "Good." And he was on a mission going somewhere, and I was on a mission, and we and we pass. And I get about twenty feet, and I hear this, "Hey." And I turn around, and he's still walking, but he's turning. I'm, I'm turning. He goes, "Is that really you on Twitter, or is that someone else?" <laughs> like, no, it's me. He goes, "That was awesome. That was cool." And so uh, this is just kind of funny, you know. As like I said, the at that stage, no one really knew right. who was
1: running Twitter accounts. This was like before blue check marks and everything, like yeah, right at the outset right. around 2010, 2011, probably. Yeah. yeah, just that. Like, is that really you on Twitter? I love that story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a product from our presenting sponsor, STP, and that is the Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. For more than 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products such as this to help engines perform at their best. In this newest product, the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline. That helps keep fuel fresh during storage, especially in engines that are stored over an extended period of time. I have used products such as these for years in my personal cars. They're very easy to use. You just put the contents in the gas tank and they improve fuel efficiency and also keep your engines running smoothly. The STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer is compatible with all 2- and 4-stroke engines including lawnmowers, boats, and motorcycles. And one bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. So be sure to check out the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. And now let's return to our conversation with Andy Graves. So, Andy, you were talking about you raced a little bit, quarter midgets, and then full bore into owning that shop. Was there ever any thought that you might want to be racing instead of working on the set? Or it seems like you were always sort of destined to be working with the cars as opposed to driving.
0: Yeah, so I I think, you know, when I started started working in the shop full-time when I was 12, I still didn't really know if I wanted to do that full-time or not or what I wanted to really do when I grew up. But uh, when I was 14, Jeff Swindell... Uh, actually contracted us to build uh, some wings because at that time with modifieds, we were building these big wings on air cylinders that would fall down on the straightaway for drag and in the corner they would pop back up which was was kind of cutting edge at that point in time. yeah so he asked us to do some wings for his world of outlaw sprint car and i was 14 years old and when i saw that 53 foot chaparral trailer show up with a uh, a spare chassis on the roof and tires strapped down and realized that these guys just traveled the country and never went home. The only, you know, the other thing other than racing that I loved was travel. So I was, it was like, <laughs> wow, that's what I want to do. When I was a teenager, I built a, a sprint car, uh, which in upstate New York, the empire super sprints, ESS was, uh, the series local series myself and a local, uh, super modified driver as we go, Joe Gosick, uh, myself and Joe owned the car together. He owned the engine and I owned the, the car. And I drove a little bit and Joe drove a little bit and it was just for fun. But I quickly realized I enjoyed driving, but I quickly realized I was way better at working on the cars um, than driving. And I'd, I've got a pretty competitive spirit. So I couldn't take running mid pack driving. I'd rather work on cars going for the victory. So I kind of by the time I was a teenager I kind of assigned you know resigned myself to the fact that I was going to drive and really don't miss it at all it's just um, I love competing and and working with the great drivers um just sure. me as much satisfaction as driving did
1: and it seems like you were more inclined for this side anyway and i mean given that you were doing this from the time you were a teenager you're like selling parts you're running a small company but management and that that organization and you know as you mentioned when you went to hendrick you were there to pretty much start their fabrication shop at what the tender age of 21 or 22 you're being given management. 20 okay wow from there to become i think tire specialist and then Chassis specialist on the number twenty four, and then crew chief by the time you're twenty six. Yes, yeah, correct. That's yeah. a pretty quick rise. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a great
0: time at Hendrick. Uh, I had a had a blast. Learned a lot of things, and and mm-hmm. I did. I you know that first year in '91, uh, running the chassis shop at the same time Chevrolet hired uh, or worked out a program with with Mister Hendrick to capture myself, Gary D Hart and um like two other guys to be the the r&d program for for chevrolet so we we would build cars we'd work on projects that they want us to do so we were starting our chassis shop and doing the r&d projects for chevrolet all at the same time gary got moved to crew chief um ricky rudd in the five in in uh, 92 and took me with him and so i was tire specialist and then during the 92 season is when jeff really started taking off and running really well with bill davis's cars and one day uh they were having a meeting up front and it was after the atlanta race in the spring and mr hendrick said man i would do anything to hire uh that right. jeff gordon kid he had just seen him race that day and it's like this right. guy's unbelievable yeah 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 and i know this is a pretty famous story but the original Jimmy Johnson, <laughs> right? The, the, the Jimmy with a Y that was our general manager at the time, and had worked for Rick for a long time. He said, "Well, you know that Andy Graves is roommates with Jeff." He <laughs> goes, "No." He goes, "I had no idea." And so, so Jimmy came to the five shop and grabbed me, and and took me up front, and we sat down. and They asked me. They said, "Well, how long is Jeff's contract?" And I said, "He doesn't have a contract." Uh, basically, Rick asked. He said, "Please bring him in in two days. Please bring him down to my office. And I want to see him." And, and sure enough, I went home that night and uh, talked to Jeff. And Jeff thought I was just pulling his leg. He, he, Jeff just thought I was pranking him. And, um, and I, it took me about two hours to convince him. And I, I actually had to get on the phone with with Bickford to tell him what was going on to get Bickford to convince Jeff that I wasn't just pulling a prank on him. So, but uh, you know, a couple days later, Jeff and I went down there. And of course, had to get through the paperwork and everything, but but had a handshake deal on the spot uh, to start a brand new team for Jeff. One of the things that Jeff had asked for he was, well, I'd, I'd love for Drew to be on my team. So at that stage, Rick agreed. And at the at the end of that season, um, they had hired Ray Abraham, and so Ray and myself were the first two guys to to start working on the 2014. The original Rainbow Warriors, yeah. you, were, you were
1: one of them. So you went from there to becoming a crew chief. 102 races, Andy is a crew chief. First with Ricky Craven, then Terry Labani You won two races, Yeah, but many would say it should have been three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Bristol. We're talking about the August 1999 race at Bristol, where Earnhardt won by knocking Terry Labonte... Out of the way after, or what he would call rattling his cage. And immediately, like you're one of the first images after that moment, they show you radioing in. What do you remember about that night? I knew, I knew when they went into turn one,
0: I knew it wasn't going to be too pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew, I, I think I had kind of uh, come to the conclusion that that we were going to get turned around (laughs) as, as he's going past me on the front stretch. So it wasn't too much of a surprise, but you know, when, when you get that close to victory, they all sting. So no, we had, we had some good battles. I mean, there there was, we, we were on the losing end of that one, but in uh, 1996, we were on the winning side of a battle with Dow. So I started being a crew chief in 97, but in 94, I actually doesn't exist. The title doesn't exist today, and it didn't exist until I got it. But I was actually, I left the 24 and went back to the 5 with Gary Dehart and became the assistant crew chief. So I was, which really right now, Gary and my roles um, from 94 uh, until 97 was, um, I was assistant crew chief and he was the crew chief, which is more like, being a crew chief and a team manager in today's time so it was uh, it was neat to win a championship with Terry in 96 and we had we had a lot of good runs.
1: And after that 99 season that was pretty much it for you as a crew chief and working on on that side that team manager side was it a case of you did it at such a young age and you were ready to do something else and you ever have any thoughts about going back to crew chief? In, during the
0: 99 season um, and, and obviously I was at, at a
1: pretty young age and
0: I was wanting to I guess I wasn't, I was never satisfied with doing things status quo or the traditional way. Uh, I was always looking to try to uh, do things better or differently. And Terry Terry would prefer to stick with more of the traditional route. So Terry and myself, um, Labani, were great friends, still great friends today. But it was, we, we could tell we were starting to grow apart. Two thirds of the way through 1999, I got a phone call from Jeff Swindell my old friend that uh, you know I I would travel with on the World of Outlaw tour from time to time and Jeff said hey I've got an IndyCar owner that is dying to meet you and because I want to bring him by uh, next week if you're around and I knew that uh, Jeff was good friends with AJ Foyt and I said Jeff I'm honored but I really have no, I don't have no desire to go to work for AJ Foy, <laughs> and he, he laughed. He goes, "No, it's not AJ." He goes, I'm, "I can't tell you who it is, but it's not AJ." And uh, I said, "Okay." I said, "Well, yeah." I said, "If you want to fly into Charlotte," and I said, "That's fine. You know, I'll, I'll spend an afternoon, and we can have dinner and and as friends, and nothing more, because I really have no desire to leave Hendrick." And uh, the next day, when he when he showed up at in my driveway, uh, Chip Ganassi got out of the car. And he came in the house and we had, a, we had a good afternoon chatting about things. And I think he was very surprised that when he came into my house, the Formula One magazines and the, <laughs> all the open wheel magazines, because really I'm, I'm an open wheel guy at heart. And so I think he was surprised by that. And he just said, hey, I, I'm looking into buying a NASCAR team and just wanted to meet you and I've heard a lot about you. And so after that, every couple of weeks, uh, I'd get a phone call from Chip, and we'd just catch up and just as friends. And and then by the end of that year, um, by November, Terry and I had agreed that, you know, that he needed to get a different crew chief. And Mr. Hendrick asked me to to run the R and D department. At the same time, Chip said, "Hey, I've got a I've got a plan. I'd like to go to the Indy 500 in 2000, and I want I don't want it to be a distraction for our cart team. So I'd like to hire you to run that." for me to have an opportunity to go to Indy with, uh, Juan Montoya and Jimmy Vassar and a four-time, uh, cart championship organization. It was pretty much a no brainer for me. So, uh, the timing was really good and, uh, talked to Mr. Uh, Mr. H and, and he agreed to let me on my contract and, and, uh, went and did that in 2000 and super fortunate to, uh, to, to win the
1: Indy 500 in 2000 Juan Pablo. That was certainly a magical experience, I'm sure, Andy. I mean, not just Juan Pablo Montoya going to Indy for the first time and winning the race and dominating fashion, which obviously you had a lot to do with, with that car, but it was also Ganassi's return. I mean, that was essentially like the first of what was then the open-wheel split, the Indy car split, the first car team to go to Indy. Yes. And... And of course, in this case, kick everybody's butt. <laughs> yeah. What was that month like? Were you guys welcomed? Was there any extra pressure? Because I know how much obviously Indy means to Chip. It definitely uh, going into it, Nate.
0: Well, you know, when I moved to Indy at the beginning of that beginning of 2000 to start putting that team together, it was it was pretty neat, and everyone was was excited, and and very quickly you felt like it was uh, a no win situation. Really? (laughs) Um, In that everyone expected us to win a sanctioning body. You know, the IRL was very welcoming. Brian Barnhart treated us like gold. I mean, I'm nothing but a lot of respect for Brian. But and all the competitors started off uh, really nice, and then as the month went on, or the months leading up to it, it seemed like it felt like there was some resentment as well. A lot of great relationships, and it was a great time. and In our month of May, went I don't know if you could even script a smoother month of May than we had. So very fortunate and um like i said i've I've built a lot of friendships off of uh, that year up in indy that uh, hold in high esteem
1: and you got to work obviously you work with some world-class drivers now with kyle bush and the like but you got to work with gordon and montoya mm-hmm. at different points in their careers there what was it like yeah that, i mean juan pablo as as you probably know i mean
0: i i rate i mean juan is still one of, one of my better friends but both juan and jimmy uh vassar matter of fact and you know, Juan Pablo is so fast. He's by far the quickest guy that I've ever been around. I was asked you know, several years ago by Marty Smith. You know, Marty asked me, he goes, who is the greatest driver you've ever worked with? And I said, each one has their strengths, yeah, it's right? It's like being asked to pick your favorite child, right? It, it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, uh, someone like, someone like uh, Jeff, uh, he is so smooth, and he's so good at keeping his momentum up, and he's so smart. Um, on the racetrack and making good decisions. and then someone like like Juan has just got the breathtaking speed. and you know, um yeah, he makes some he can make some mistakes on the track, but you're 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 not going to be able to to run a faster lap than Juan again in right. Kyle's, Kyle's very similar to, to Juan Pablo, in my personal opinion. He's super quick. Just th- those guys are fast. I mean, it's it's hard. You're just not going to go out there and outballs
1: those two guys. You win Indy with Chip, and then you do five or six years there on the Cup side with Chip. Indy as they bring Dodge in, part of that program. And then, fall of 2006, you come to Toyota Racing Development. And it's before Toyotas actually make a lap on track in Cup. When you arrived here, did you understand or did you sense that things would eventually get to where they are today because first year was was really difficult and there were a lot of questions about how Toyota would do in NASCAR's Premier Series.
0: Yeah, I I think I had, um, you know, in 2006 when worked out the the, the deal to, to come here to trd with lee white and in and, and david wilson i knew it was going to be tough going for a little while yeah But I, I definitely had not been prepared for what we had to endure <laughs> Really, <laughs> that, that first year of 2007 it was it was pretty ugly but i think it going into you know with the mindset that you're be able to come in with a new manufacturer um uh, like Toyota in, in the, the great reputation that they always had, to me it was exciting to build something new, um, and I, I think that that was, you know, to put in the time and and I, I was hoping that we were going to have the the learning curve to about two or three years, but it, w- it was a little bit longer than that. But it, it makes it all worthwhile today, you know, and and um, so it was it was a challenge for sure, not not only. The teams that we had at that time trying to help them get going and get started because there were, you know, we had Bill Davis's outfit and then Red Bull and Michael Waltrip's where it was total brand new organizations and on top of that having the old car and the,
1: the car of tomorrow and go bouncing back and forth, it was it was really tough. 2008, though, the game changed a little bit when you guys added Joe Gibbs Racing and, and things from there have been, I would say, vastly different for the yeah. best part, right? The, yeah. the, the game definitely changed when we got, when we got JGR. Yeah, it's, it's been great. When you hear complaining th- this season about the advantages that Toyota has, Andy, uh, can you even compare it to the manufacturer wars in NASCAR when you came in 25 years ago? I mean, people want to say that there's manufacturer perceived advantages or disadvantages but to me it's just it's not the same as it was at all just based on the cars and the teams and the structure and everything right
0: yeah i don't you know i i guess i struggle a little bit one with that one Nate, um you know i, I don't know if it's just that the, the world has changed a bunch now and with social media everything is in your face all the time uh constantly and and so you know you you keep hearing the messages quite often I think if you carve some of that out it's it's probably it's similar it's you know i mean we're we're all out here competing and trying to do the best job we can and and when someone or a group puts um the 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 magic all together and and has captured it in the bottle um you know it's you you have to you have to deal with that for a little bit and and try to enjoy that while you have it because it's not going to last forever jimmy johnson and chad knouse had that for a long time and, and, and Chevrolet, and they, you know, those guys did it um, really good. So we're pretty fortunate. The last three years, you know, we've we've had re- three really good seasons, and very very fortunate to be with all the people at uh, Toyota TRD, Joe Gibbs Racing, and Furniture Row Racing.
1: Do you feel, Andy, that you've had the crew chief relationships, especially with Furniture Row? and Cole Pern and, and what that Joe Gibbs racing nucleus the last couple of years. I know you've been involved in that as well. You're on the text messaging chains. They share information. Is it just about your impact on that? And is it just about like Toyota getting everybody just to kind of work on the same page? Is it just that simple? It's just, you know, the human capital that we hear like guys like Roger Penske talking about.
0: Uh, it is that simple. It's just not that simple to put together. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that, that, the script is that simple. In order to do that and to get everyone working together is is extremely difficult. It's fortunate for all of us. You know, it, we've had we we have so many great people at TRD on the vehicle side. We have so many great people at TRD on the engine side, and the teams have great people. But to get them all to click together and everything today, Nate is a compromise. You know in, in 1991, 1992, you could find a new part and bolt it on the car, and it was worth two tenths of a second, and it never hurt any other area of the car. Today, every decision you make is a gain in one area, and it'll hurt two or three other areas. And so, every decision is what is the best compromise, right? At this point, so I think the relationships that TRD has and and with the teams and our involvement and total integration is we're making decisions together and it's okay if, if a decision ends up being, we're going to put this part on the car and it's going to hurt power, but it's going to help mechanical grip. Okay. If it's faster on the stopwatch, let's do it and we'll take it on the chin. That you know, those are those are very unique situations, and and those don't happen very often. And, and to be very honest with you, I, I think that that's that's the biggest key that we have is we've got a lot of contributors in the core that just want to win races, and and are willing to
1: sacrifice individual goals for the best for the team. Getting six teams on the same page every Tuesday or whenever, every day, really that must be like you said. They all want to win, but they probably all have. own approach and their ideas there's probably a lot of instances where you've got to get buy-in from somebody who might say well I'm not sure if I think this is right but if the other three or four or five guys and Andy is saying it and Dave Wilson saying it then let's do it right yeah
0: absolutely it is and and, you know as you would expect we don't always agree right right but also um, just for instance I, I I think all the drivers and all the crew chiefs and the technical people they know when I'm when i speak up and i'm passionate about something that when i usually get that passionate i'm not wrong wrong very often <laughs> so so they, they you choose they, your battles yeah they, they learn battles. how to yeah, yeah. They, they learn how to uh how to read that body language and 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 we all
1: give each other that respect um so that that's it's been very special You were heavily involved when NASCAR went to Gen 6. You were involved in that process and figuring out how to optimize some parts of that car from the, the vehicle dynamics and chassis side. NASCAR is starting to talk now about two to four years down the road. It sounds like Gen 7 is coming I know they're also talking like engine things. I'm sure you've been involved in some of that. Where do you think NASCAR needs to go, or where would you like to see them go? Uh, that
0: that's a that's a tough question, Nate, and and one I, I really don't know the answer either. You yeah. know, it, it's I think it's important the the complex um, issue that we have now is to keep the manufacturers interested and involved in the sport. You, you have to allow them to have some IP, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to allow them to have some skin in the game, uh, not only with the body surface, but some of the DNA that, that we all want underneath the hood and, and being able to showcase the strengths of that manufacturer from an engineering point of view. At the same time, that directly goes against Cost savings, and so we, we we all have to find a balance to make this affordable and put more fans back in the in the stands, and but at the same time keep our DNA. Otherwise. It'll turn into an IROC series, and I don't think that that's going to be healthy either long-term. It's a challenge. It's very difficult. It's
1: There's a lot of challenges uh, on the plate for the future, for sure. The discussion about manufacturers, obviously it's been a hot topic the last month. NASCAR kind of went away from it when they introduced what was then known as like common templates. It seemed like that was their way of taking that part of the equation out. But as you just said, anyway, I think it's important for manufacturer identity and relevance. Isn't it better in some ways? I guess to have the complaining and you know what I remember about the late '90s is I know NASCAR didn't like it, but I think there's some appeal to that. I think fans like it when teams are screaming about manufacturers and edges and that sort of thing, right? I mean, yeah, I, I you know those rivalries are are healthy and good, and I, I do
0: too. But you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, at the at the end of the, end of the day. You know, putting putting fans in the stands and and getting fans to pay attention to our sport is is number one, right? And I'm my my job is to make cars go faster. Um, so I'm not I'm not really qualified to know <laughs> what, what's what's yeah. best for fan engagement. Um, it, it it does get very confusing. And again, with our the social media of today, sure. Everybody's got a megaphone and it's yeah. out there in different ways. Yeah, yep. and yeah. and what you can get to me it, when if you pay attention to it for a little while, you get I get very very confused exactly what they want because it seems like one person wants this today and then you do that and then they want something else tomorrow. Um, so it's it's just tough. And then
1: we just end up tweeting emojis. Which is okay, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Seems like it gets a lot easier. All
1: right. Well, as you said, your job, of course, is making cars go fast. And there are cars on the track now at Dover. So I'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I did learn a lot about the Andy Graves story, which I was hoping to do. So thanks for sharing the stories. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. We appreciate Andy Graves for joining us. He has had quite the storied career and has so many stories from working with the likes of Jeff Gordon, Juan Pablo Montoya, Kyle Busch. It was great to hear Andy's story and also his insight into what has made the Toyota teams such a powerful combination through cooperation. Really good look into why it's so hard to get rival crew chiefs on the same page in modern-day NASCAR. And apologies on the background noise for the last third of that conversation. As I mentioned, we were in the Dover International Speedway infield, which can be a loud place when practice gets started, as it did that Saturday morning. Your sound engineer here attempted to minimize that, so hopefully it just sounded more like pleasing ambient noise than distracting rumbling. Thanks as well to Lisa Hughes-Kennedy, Laura Finley, and Matthew Simmons of Toyota Racing PR, who were very helpful and patient in coordinating this conversation, which was worth the wait. NASCAR will open the round of eight this weekend at Martinsville Speedway, and of course the NASCAR NBC team is there. On Saturday, cup practice is at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on the NBC Sports app and at 3.45 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. On Sunday, cup qualifying will begin at noon Eastern on NBCSN, followed by NASCAR America at 1 p.m. and Countdown to Green at 2.30 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. And then the green flag for the opener of the round of eight at Martinsville Speedway is at 3.13 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the NASCAR NBC podcast, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We're available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, you can find this one. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast, presented by STP.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need.